Saturday the 30th of November and this is a very special edition of Monocle's House View coming to you live from Zurich. I'm Georgina Godwin and shortly I'll be joined by Tyler Brulé. Now coming up today, safe cities. As London comes to terms with another terrorist incident, we'll ask how cities can manage security threats whilst remaining open and welcoming. Also ahead, what should a newspaper look like in 2020? Following Gannett's mega merger this month in the United States, we'll look at how the news model ought to be updated for the new decade. All that and the day's newspapers too. That's all ahead on this special edition of Monocle's House View, live from our Christmas market in Zurich, starting now. Good morning from Monocle's Christmas Market here at our bureau in Zurich. I am Georgina Godwin. My co-host is our editor-in-chief, Tyler Brulé. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. And it's wonderful to be here in this great city, but also at this lovely market here at Dufusstrasse 90. Yeah, no, we were outside. You were having a, we call, we'll call it just a small break. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, yes, the, the chestnuts uh, are, are gently warming already. Uh, and uh, I haven't seen the, the bouillon. I don't know if it's bubbling yet, but uh, I think bull, bull shots will be, uh, will be underway uh, shortly. I'm very pleased to hear it. Now we've got a couple of guests in the studio with us. Uh, ben Ozog is a researcher at the Centre for Security Studies at ETH Zurich and Jan Dalhinton is Bloomberg's Bureau Chief here in Switzerland. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Now, big story today. Police in London have responded to what they call a terrorist incident yesterday after a man wielding a knife attacked several people in the London Bridge area. Two people were killed, three others injured. It's one of several attacks that the British capital has seen in recent years. Uh, Benno, we've been having a look through the newspapers and seeing exactly what happened here. It's still unclear. The police have been calling it an ongoing incident, although they've now ruled out the fact that anybody else was involved. But the shocking thing about it is that the man who did this, uh, Osman Khan, uh, actually has a record. He had been arrested for terrorism incidents. He'd been trying to blow up the London Stock Exchange. Uh, He'd been been put away uh, for an indefinite amount of time on appeal that had been reduced to 16 years. He had to spend eight years of that in prison. He was let out last December and here we are less than a year later already committing another offence. Obviously, this is a hugely sad incident, and it's very important that authorities now look into what the exact circumstances, particularly of his release, were, and whether there were any mistakes made. Um, this tragedy aside, and mourning is obviously with the victims, um, we mustn't forget that such a thing as absolute security will never exist. So no matter how perfect this, these um, detention centres may be, prisons may be, courts may be, It only takes one person that kind of slips through the cracks or is willing to go all the way, maybe despite having uh, not shown any signs of radicalization in the previous decade or so. Mm. And we mustn't forget that. And we should be quite cautious as to what kind of measures one could take and recommend now, because there's always this temptation of almost overreacting. Obviously, politicians are now under pressure to kind of show that they take this seriously, that they take action, that they make... uh, Uh, legislation more restrictive, for example, that they increase numbers of police, but we should obviously be sensible here and apply the appropriate measures and not go too hasty. Hence, we have to see what the the real backgrounds of this story are. I mean, of course, I think people will talk about response times, and and I think I felt in the yeah, certainly the hours afterwards, there is a lot of metrics given. You know, the government wants to pump out a lot of data, five-minute response time, seven-minute response time, all of these things. Nevertheless, 
two people are dead uh, and three people are injured. And, and this, you know, obviously, you know, we don't want to be in a situation where this, of course, spikes copycats, but you have to sort of think about that in the context of it as well. But we're sitting in Zurich um, where police cars go up and down the street every certainly in front of this office, it feels like every 10 minutes. And in London, I think, you know, the big issue right now, Georgina, is people just don't see police. On one side, they say there's this sort of invisible, uh, you know, the cops are there, you just don't see them. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, we've seen, and, and whether this is Brexit related or not, you know, there's been so many discussions with people at a very high level of government that eyes are going to be off the ball across a whole number of things. We're not just talking about security, uh, but there are a number of things because people have been so focused on this. And... We can talk about more police, but all we've been hearing about is police cuts. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and, and Jan, I think that Tyler has a very good point there. We're focused on other things. Uh, but one of, the, one of the fallouts from Brexit, of course, is that the lack of security cooperation now that will be going forward between Britain uh, and, and the EU. I mean, that's going to impact security, surely. Well, I guess um, maybe it's too early to say if, that, if, if Brexit will, will really result in a reduction of security cooperation. Um, I would possibly question that. Um, I think, I mean, on that though, I mean, yeah, as you know, I think as Jan is saying, still early days um, and there's probably going to be a lot of bilateral discussions as to, as to, where, as to where it ends up. But um, I, I think, I mean, just you know, from my view, it's, you know, we're in a situation in the UK right now where you know if your house if your flat gets broken into the police don't even come anymore mm. um and that, i mean that's a very very different place from where we're sitting here at the moment yeah now you were talking about police response times and and Ian, one of the things that i was very interested in was the fact that this man was actually stopped by members of the public uh and whilst of course they they're all being hailed as heroes this is an incredibly dangerous thing to do of course it is. I mean, also, um, uh, according to the reports, he was wearing um, some kind of suicide vest, which um, oh yeah, turned out to be a fake. But still, I mean, it um, it shows it shows extreme it shows extreme bravery, or as um, as politicians were were quick to emphasise, it was a, a sign of a great British spirit. Of course, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, you would say that um, a week before an election. And Georgine, that's what you were saying as well. I mean, there is there's a timing component to all of this, which is we're in this. You know, we're in, of course, really two weeks out. Uh, of course, uh, from everyone heading to the polls, and yeah, your point, Georgine, is like. No one's looking to score points, and of course, everyone's you know very happy to say we're going to suspend um, you know campaigning, you know, whether it's for a day, two days, or, or will they be back out um, on the road this afternoon? Um, but you know, looking at um, the current prime minister, as you said, trying to look his most prime ministerial um, and cobra meetings and all, all of these things becomes, yeah, in a way, part of the halo uh, also around the party. Yeah, absolutely. Benno, you were talking about the fact that we need to try and keep our cities safe, obviously, while still making them welcoming. Now, this is not the first sort of leading into Christmas attack that we've had. Of course, there was that horrific Christmas market attack that we saw. And this now, the city of Christmas markets, the time of Christmas markets. How do we manage? the security threat uh, while still letting people feel Christmassy. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's the huge challenge. And for example, after the Bataclan attacks in France, there were 10,000 soldiers on the streets with guns. And I myself, I, I visited Paris during that time. I was wondering, do I feel more secure now seeing all these guns or do I feel less secure in the end? Have the terrorists won by militarizing our streets? So that is a really dangerous response. I would hope that policymakers are more sensible. And I think there's 
There's loads of ways and loads of cities have experimented with different measures that can be incorporated into regular street life without even people noticing. I think if you walk through certain cities with the lens of where are measures to prevent terrorist attacks, for example, pollards or roadblocks and so on, sometimes you don't even see them because they kind of merge with the scenery. Some are maybe nice benches that are just by coincidence, fairly massive and could stop a lorry from entering a certain pedestrian area. I think, and at Monocle, we're the perfect spot for that. Smart urban planning and good urban design is a way to do this with very small measures that can have a big effect, but may even be used to other ends as well. For example, as a bench or as a nice huge flower pot that is good, nice to look at, green for the city, but also prevents such in incidents. Um, and once again, I can only re-emphasize absolute safety doesn't exist mm. and we mustn't ever emphasize or politicians shouldn't promise that they can deliver on that because as you said there's hundreds and thousands of christmas markets we can't protect them all from one crazy lunatic yeah. which is all it takes so smart design might be the way forward yeah and i mean this becomes a big narrative and there's so many you know there's so many both companies and governments right now um who are doing a very fine business on perimeter protection uh and you know whether that is in disguise or on the other side i mean do you also do you make a you know, a ball or a barricade actually look like a barricade um, as well. And, and you know, it's also interesting in Zurich, um, you see, you know, quite strategic use of police vans off, often, especially around sort of not far from here, sexy Leutenplatz, where they, they've chosen they've chosen to keep it open um, in, in many ways. But obviously there are access points where if you think of someone who's going to drive a van, they're going to certainly sort of build up ahead of steam. Those points are often uh, are often blocked by vans and vehicles. And I think that's also important in open society as well, is how much do you erect a barrier versus how much you say bad things unfortunately um, can happen and of course then it becomes much more um, the the intelligence uh, side of things and how much are you able to be across it and, and preempt um, potentially what might happen. Not sure you've noticed uh, Zurich's main station uh, they this week put up uh, sort of concrete blocks that have a crisp Christmas trees in them. It looks beautiful. Oh, I missed that. Uh, you you got to go and take <laughs> a look, yeah. Yeah, well, and that's an example of exactly how to do it. So our Monocle House View will continue in a moment right after this. The Monocle Christmas Market returns to London next month on the 7th and 8th of December as Midori House is transformed into a winter wonderland for the 8th year running. Why not join Tyler Brule and his team for glue wine, gifts and festive cheer in the heart of London? Browse stalls run by some of our favourite global brands and try your luck on our tombola. Get into the Yuletide spirit by picking up some presents while being serenaded by a Swedish choir and saying hello to grazing reindeer, our resident mascot Monochan the Owl and of course Santa all the way from Rovaniemi in Finland. Stave off the cold with warming and hearty dishes from the Monocle Cafe and enjoy holiday tips and gift advice from the Monocle team. Join us at the Monocle Christmas Market at Midori House on Dorset Street in Marylebone on Saturday the 7th and Sunday the 8th of December. We ho ho hope to see you there. Tervetuloa! 
the sound of our colleague Marcus Hiffey there telling us all about the Christmas market that's going to be happening in London next weekend. But this weekend, we're here at the Christmas market in Zurich. We're here in Zurich, but that was a little bit of a sort of a soft power plug for Finland, uh, as we know, because um, sadly, at this market, we don't have a Santa. Um, but we do have Santa's, of course, a big feature. And uh, and Santa's big business. Um, I'm not sure um, if this is if someone's doing the, the Christmas beat uh, Jan uh, at um, at Bloomberg, but maybe your your Helsinki office should sort of be looking at. I'm not going to call it a racket, but it is quite something. The people of Santa Claus Village up in northern Finland, Santa's like out. Well, yeah, Santa's out on the road all the time, and one day he's in Seoul opening a department store, and then the next thing Santa is, uh, of course, he's jumping to Tokyo because he's doing glue vine at Isatan, and then he's with us uh, in in London. And Santa has like a proper rider, Santa. Santa has to stay at um, the Hyatt. Santa has to um, have 15... But is he, what, Santa gets like 15 minutes sort of every hour. And comfort then breaks. Comfort yeah. breaks. And then, of course, of course, there's a lot of gear to take off. And then, of course, um, you know, and then I sort of think, I mean, how politicized Santa's job is right now because, you know, you have to have big gloves because, you know, you don't want to sort of go near a child in a weird way or anything like that. So there's there's all of those components. Yeah, it's, not, a, it's not an easy gig. Sitting Santa. on Santa's lap, I think, is, is, is a that's whole way, that's, dimension. That's, that's, that's <laughs> history, I think. Uh, so we're joined in the studio by our guests, uh, Ben Ozog and Jan de Hinton. And we're having a look through the newspapers. Tyler, what's caught your eye? Um, what has caught my eye um, are a, a number of things. I know we're going to be talking about um, newspaper mergers and uh, and the future of, of what papers are, are going to look like. One thing I saw uh, this morning, though, which is um, on the front page of the Financial Times, it's part of their big read uh, for the weekend. Um, so it's so upper right, top top uh, top of the uh, FT Weekend Europe edition uh, headline: Big Luxury LVMH uh, on on a roll. And um, having just returned from Paris, obviously this comes off the back of their. Um, Acquisition, uh, or, or certainly bid and um, and accepted bid for for, for Tiffany and Company, uh, and and this is it's interesting for a number of reasons because. You know, of course, LVMH does very well in the States. I think I would say much of their fortune, of course, has been really focused on the China story, on the Asia story. Uh, but you look at, you know, a, a single metropolitan market like Hong Kong has taken a massive dent uh, and, and you know, numbers are, are in a uh, not a great place. So this idea of focusing on, on the world's biggest economy, um, of course, there's been a number of um, you know, there's that sort of high, high profile moment of Monsieur Arnault and Mr. Trump because also uh, Tiffany's, uh, pardon me, LVMH is also opening up more manufacturing in the United States. Um, so this is a fascinating one. And then I would say sort of, you know, personally, um, it becomes an interesting story personally from the view of a magazine. It was really interesting. Um, oh, there's children here already. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's Christmas. We um, love children. We do. Bring your kids. Uh, but um, <laughs> no, it was interesting having a discussion um, with the major brands right now because I think the story that underlies all of this, though, is uh, we're seeing a bit of a shift. Um, and, and when we're going to be talking about newspapers in a moment, it was fascinating talking to the big brands, not just LVMH, but also uh, Richemont, one of their peers, Caring Group. We're going to see a move back to to print. Everyone was talking about, you know, they really want to have a rebalance now. And there was this talk of 2020, you will see more advertising spend 
going back into a print environment, more going back to out of home um, as well. And I think you really see this in a lot of airports now. Uh, you know, the big brands, you know, maybe once upon a time it would have been a vodka or it would have been, um, you know, a, another business. Um, you know, now it is, it's Celine. Uh, you now see that it's Bouchon. It's all of these big brands, you know, buying out of home space. So I'm fascinated to see this sort of rebalance. And I think one of it is also just a, a backlash a little, get, a little bit against programmatic. You know, I was talking to two big brands that said, you know, when you have programmatic advertising, you just don't know where your ad is going to to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you might buy into the right, okay, you might buy into the right media vehicle, um, but then you, you, you simply do not know uh, where that ad is going to, to end, end up. And I think it's really interesting that, that you mentioned uh, Richemont because this the, the LVMH acquisition of Tiffany, or at least the agreed acquisition, yeah. uh, makes LVMH a, a major player in hard luxury, uh, but also it ramps up competition for Richemont with, for brands like Cartier and Van Cleef and Arpels. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, Van Cleef are moving into men's uh, next year. So I think you're also sort of seeing how can they go and expand their existing range you know, in a way, also the the hard luxury companies. Cartier is a very good example of that. You know, a brand that you know they'll be putting a lot of emphasis um, on on a new relaunch next year. Of course, everyone thinking, you know, how do you then get a 27 year old, 28 year old, probably outside of Asia? You know, how do you get the 28 year old in Germany to go and and spend, you know, nine, eleven, fifteen thousand on on a bracelet? Um, and I think this is a this is a huge um, challenge for them. I was thinking if we were if staying in speaking of Germany. Um, Jan found an interesting story uh, earlier, which uh, has made uh, well, and let's. And it's one of these. Is, you know, is it sort of a, a Christmas fantasy story, uh, which you found um, on the uh, on the outer suburbs of Berlin? Um, yeah, you, you're referring to the um, the opening date for Berlin's new airport, BER, <laughs> <clears throat> which has now been set for the 31st of October next year. Um, when I saw the story yesterday afternoon popping up on Twitter, I thought. Um, well, I hope someone's told them there's, le- there's less than 12 months to go. Um, and for those who haven't been following it blow by blow, um, I think that would be opening on the 31st of October would be almost exactly nine years after the initially planned opening date. And um, if you if you recall the story, uh, the uh, construction of the airport which, you know, basically was beset by delays and problems and, uh, you know, uh, for, on and on, uh, it mainly inclu- um, involving the, um, you know, uh, fire safety, smoke alarms, ventilation, mm-hmm. all sorts of things. Uh, um, there was also a whole bribing scandal, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, well, I, I can't. I can't really go into detail on that. But it was. I mean, it, it, it's a highly politicised story because um, I think they had. Um, obviously, the, the 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 state of Brandenburg and the city of Berlin. They have big stakes in this. Um, so there is a huge political component in this. And um, so I was just saying, yeah, when you look at it as well, then there's all these stories about capacity already as well, saying, in fact, it's not even right sized anymore. It's so, too small. Yeah, yes. it's too, it's already, so it's going to open. It's too small. And I just, every time I'm in Berlin, I just, I think, okay, you know, Tegel needs a new lick of paint. Um, and there have been a lot of, you know, arguments as well, saying actually the city should probably have two airports, you know, make, uh, make BER, uh, you know, leave that as the long haul and maybe low cost airport. Uh, but you have the luxury of having an airport um, at the city center. Um, and of course, yes, we can push more people to trains, but um, make or leave TXL um, as, as you know, the European sort of hopper airport. Well, Tegel is very, it's very small. It's very efficient, right? I mean, you sort of, you hop off a taxi and you're at the gate. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so modern in, in, in so many ways. It's probably going back to security. It's a bit of a security nightmare. Um, 
um, as well because they've got security at every, as, as, instead of funneling everyone through sort of one central, central point you have to have sort of you know multiple um, really sort of multiple points of entry to every gate but as you said you pull up at a cab and you're literally at the gate um, or you could be at the gate in, in three minutes you could be in a security crew and there could be some very very grumpy people because um, I do find that they're most notoriously slow people to process your bags but anyway that's just this editor's I view think, I think as far as the 31st of October is concerned I think we should prevail a we shouldn't book healthy, now we shouldn't book now no I wouldn't, a healthy amount of skepticism is probably as, if you can speak as a German and not with your Bloomberg hat on I mean are, are you surprised do you think that, 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 that this sort of this sort of stings I mean that people think that this is because this, you know, this did become a high profile story and whether it was New York Times lots of people writing about this seemed so un-German um, or not well um, is it un-German? I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, usually what happens when, when people talk about BER, they'll bring up Beijing and say, like, look, they, got, they, got, they built a massive airport in, what, four years or something like that? Why can't we do that? And actually, that Because is, you're not China. Well, exactly. And that is a question that, you know, people in, in developed Western countries are asking themselves. Why does everything take, take so long? And in Germany, partly the reason is that, I mean, the moment you you launch or you announce a big project, there'll be, you know, dozens of people turning out to say, well, not, it basically is all boils down to not in my backyard. Mm. Mm. Does, I, and I, then things get delayed in courts forever. I'm wondering, and this is, we raised this a couple of weeks ago um, on, on our pages or screens, which way, what way is the world going to go? Uh, you know, do, does the decadent West, uh, do the comfy Europeans, you know, continue to you know spend you know their summers on med and do we really move to a three-day work week from the four that many people are already working um, or do you think we we go and I mean, you were you were based in, in Singapore for some time do you think that we have to sort of go the direction we the world have to go the direction of, of Asia and have to be a little bit snappier and and faster Discuss. Um, well, I mean, I think one of the major things that, that that's feeding into that, and whilst we're on airports, is is this pressure now not to get on airplanes because well, that's of, the other thing as well uh, the the environmental impact. But I and, mean, that, and that's a message which is this. I, I think it's a fir, you know it, it's it is becomes a sort of a first world sort of luxury discussion because I'll tell you, I mean, I don't. That is not a dis, I, I was in China two weeks ago. And three weeks ago, on a plane, I guess. Of course, on a plane. I, I, I wasn't doing sort of. Um, you know, the, <laughs> no, I was. I wasn't. I wasn't taking uh, the, the Trans-Siberian. The, yeah, or or the freight train that I think does it end up somewhere in Warsaw that that sort of chugs across from China. Anyway, no, I was not doing that. But also, it was interesting talking to, uh, yeah, Chinese businessmen and to talk, talking to students and everything. That is just not a discussion. John. No one is talking about flight shaming. It's not. It, it's not even a topic. Mm. Um, and so I, I think that's another side as well. I mean, on one side you could be sitting in in Zurich and everyone's talking about what do we do with the airport and more taxes and and you know and we have to reduce the flight hours, and you know, and then on the other side, of course, you've got the CEO of the airport saying, if we're going to have a level playing field, I mean, they are not. Uh, they're not reducing orders of aircraft. They're not building fewer airports. They're not imposing more curfews in China. And by the way, more Chinese airlines would like to fly to Zurich. Yeah, it's absolutely. ironic that you mentioned Zurich because just this week, Zurich Flughafen announced an investment in India. Yeah, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not in Zurich. Is, was, it, was it Delhi on? Mm, no, I or can't Bangalore? Remember the name. Or? Yeah. No, it was a, well, a, a, a relatively small airport right. that probably processes 30 million passengers gonna, a year. <laughs> considerably more than this city. But anyway, mm. I, I think it's, it's interesting to see which, which way we 
which way we we end we end up. Benno, where do you sit on all this? <laughs> well, to be fair, I think Europe is a tiny continent. So if we manage to overcome these weird national rail systems that we have, and that often prove to be incompatible, and I think Germany is one of the worst when it comes to that. I just heard recently, like there's these cross-border cooperation, for example, Italy, Switzerland, and Germany. Everyone builds his uh, his section, um, and Germany is like 15, 20 years behind. So if we don't really get this sorted, like well, can we? flight shaming may not lead anywhere because we don't even have alternatives Mm. and obviously China and speaking of airports that are fastly built um, Istanbul airport within the delay of Berlin airport they built an entire mega airport Um, so I think things you can do in Turkey as well exactly so authoritarianism works when it comes to that let's see how sustainable it is or or benevolence I was going to say as well because uh going to the other side of your your rail equation um the swiss i think have been frustrated by the time you get to chiasso to get to milano centrale uh the swiss government or sbb or 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 the government um will be um lending the italians some money to uh to improve the tracks uh, to get to milano centrale as well so um government of lombardia and i'm sure Trenitelli is very happy that they because and this is this is interesting. I think from a competitive point of view, they want to create a very strong, uh, I think, link between between Zurich and Milan, for example, because you see Zurich. Part of me, you see Milan very much on the ascent at the moment as well. Definitely, uh, Benno. What have you found in the papers? Well, let's see. Actually, obviously, the the London attacks are are all over all over the news as always. Like there's this major hype a few days after such an attack, and then it, it kind of uh, goes down. So. Actually, I tend to to stick with weekly newspapers, because, and even, very often I read them one week later. Um, but then, after two weeks of the actual events happening, you really notice what was really important, mm. and most of it, ninety percent, was just daily business that one can really forget about. Um, sadly, Georgina, I've got one for you. The front page of the FT: um, Modern move for Harare hotel host to colonial past and independence day. It says, and this is the down page on the on the FT this morning. It says, it is a piece of Zimbabwe's colonial past that has fallen on hard times, but Harare's venerable uh, Nelda's hotel uh, could soon be under new management after. Du- Dubai-based buyer approached the U.S. chain Hyatt to run it. How did now, as as uh, a a Zimbabwean, as, as someone who Harare very dear to your heart? Yeah. Uh, how so, are you feeling about that? Let me tell you that, that Meikle's Hotel, I used to do the PR for the hotel. Oh, okay. Full um, disclosure, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> exactly. Used to be very, very involved with it uh, and, and designed the music system for the hotel, decided which uh, which tracks would be played in which I areas. I had no idea where this is. So we were going to end up here anyway. <laughs> um, and one of the things we did was um, got a new carpet in, which had paw prints all over it. Uh, and in order to launch this... Wo- woven in. Yeah. You didn't sort yeah, of like no, no. find... what you, you weren't dipping paws that were coming out of the, the veld. Woven in. Do you say the veld? Um, yes, you do. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and we brought in, um, as part of the whole thing, um, a baby lion, a lion cub. And we had the British ambassador's wife at the time playing the piano. And she was doing big sort of bits from The Sound of Music and, and, and various Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals as this lion cub got more and more excited and was kind of... <laughs> trying to, to, shall we say, get intimate with the British ambassador's wife as she was playing hits from the musical and all the world's press was around. And the reason they were all around was that the guest of honour was Michael Jackson. Wait, What year is this? Well, cell phones, mobile phones had just come out. Without cameras. Uh, exactly. Um, so it must have been in the early 90s. And I remember my cell phone disappeared on that day from 
from Michael Jackson's suite, and I have always maintained that Michael Jackson stole myself. <laughs> we will never find out. And, and, who, and are we, who, who would have financed this um, extravaganza? Uh, well, I guess there was Zimbabwean money, but even at that stage, quite a lot of Chinese money. And I think Al- already, already at, at that point. But I think very interesting that Dubai is coming in to, to buy this. I mean, it is. There's, there's traditionally been a very big link up between the hospitality industries in both United Arab Emirates and in Harare. Big hotel school collaboration between the two uh, and it, 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 it actually on a business level makes sense it's a beautiful beautiful hotel with lovely infrastructure and I can see why they might want to take it up particularly if if um, if Zimbabwe's economy recovers which doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon but certainly a big investment from from the Middle East I think could could make that happen I could see Jan you could you know be doing the Harari Bureau after I mean Bloomberg Harari sounds great after. It's time for the next posting, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a much more pleasant place to be based than Johannesburg, which is where most of the Southern African stuff comes from. Gentlemen, you were pointing at some stories down page on, looks like, is it the Süddeutsche or the the Frankfurt Allgemeine? That is actually the Frankfurt Allgemeine. And since it's Saturday morning, a good quote is always nice. After French President Macron called NATO brain dead, Erdogan, Turkish president, also a NATO member, Asked the question at the public event whether maybe Macron is brain dead. Lovely. <laughs> oh dear, yeah. oh dear. Luckily, we have to end quite soon because I think that we don't want to go into the state of Mr. Macron's brain. Although, although uh, Jan, I mean, he has got huge ambitions for Europe, hasn't he? Um, well, I'm not entirely sure, does he? I mean, it, it, it's sort of like the, 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 sort of, uh, the, the status of, of Turkey as a, an EU uh, membership candidate. I mean, how old is that? 30 years? It's been, 25 it's been years? a while. Something like that. I, I mean, would, it'll outlive Mr. Mar- uh, Mr. Not Mr. Macron, Mr. Erdogan, I'm sure. But Mr. Macron as well, one, one thing which I, I did hear a little bit of, um, uh, and it's not surprising for France, but that they're, and yeah, maybe you've heard this already, it's been across the Bloomberg wires, but um, they're going to do a massive push in the same way that they've done their big, their big Viva Tech moment. And this has been uh, the, the whole, uh, you know, push for, of course, France to be recognized as a technology player. They're no surprise they're going to be doing a massive of soft power food festival. So he wants to almost be kind of convening the WEF, the World Economic Forum Summit of Food. May, the date for you. Fantastic. We've marked it in our diaries. Uh, Listen, thank you very much to our guests. uh, And uh, that's all for today. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'm Tyler Brillet. Thank you for listening. 